The information provided in this podcast is intended for general knowledge and is not a substitute for professional medical advice or treatment under the guidance of your personal physician. On this episode of Faith Family Medicine, Dr. Sean and Marcy answer your questions about COVID-19. So let's jump right into the questions. How are you guys coping with the COVID-19 quarantine? Well, Marcy, things things are going really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we're, we're grateful for sure. I'm still working. My husband's still working. Um... And we're all healthy. So, of course, we are grateful for all of those things. It is challenging, though, because it's just, you know, everything changed. It changed fairly quickly, just adjusting to school. I would say the homeschooling is the biggest challenge that we're facing because our children are just such social butterflies. Um they like to be with their friends. They like to get out. They're really active. For our Chicago peeps, you know, we have California children. So they like going outside whenever. Mm-hmm. And it, that part is really difficult. To all the teachers out there, you guys rock. It's a reason why I'm not a teacher. And you guys are. <laughs> I think by about day two, I was completely over the whole homeschool situation, just over it. Yeah. Uh, But thank God again, you know, we had uh, Professor Grandma to uh, be the homeschool teacher. Oh, yeah. You have a true professor in the house. Yeah. When I saw what was happening, you know, she had recently retired. Mm -hmm. I was like, Grandma, we're going to need you to come Mm -hmm. because I, I could see it. I saw what was coming. So I was like, okay. You know, only about a week or two out, but I was like, you know, once it started spreading, I was like, okay, this is not going to be going on longer, meaning regular school. Yeah. So she came and jumped right in. Mm -hmm. Now it's a difference between teaching college students versus third and fifth graders. Right. Yeah. But um, he's making it work. Yeah. We're doing the best that we can. That's what matters. (laughs) At least it's not you. We're doing the best that we can. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's all you can do right now. Lila's only four. So the most we can homeschool is like 60 minutes. And even that is a stretch for a four-year-old. But I couldn't do it like 20 minutes. So like Wayne and all the homeschooling right now, like I I just like lock myself away. And because I just would get frustrated at like the smallest thing. And it was not healthy for her to have that going on. So you got to pick and choose your battles. Amen to that. And there there are resources that we're even sharing with our own school from different organizations about things that you can do um, with instantaneous like distance learning. And I think that's something we, we can post on the Facebook and Instagram page. Just some yeah. more ideas. To be honest, y'all, I'm just like, I'm counting down the days. <laughs> we just got the email. School is over on the 22nd. I'm like, ha, maybe, yeah, because I am just completely over it. How are your kids adjusting? 
But the kids, have, for the most part, have been pretty good. Mm-hmm. But Sammy did say to me the other night, when can we just go out? He wants to go to a movie. He wants to go to a store. Yeah. So then I finally had to explain, it's still not quite safe yet mm-hmm. to just be out in the belt. It's a hard conversation to say. Lila will ask, you know, is the virus still outside? And I don't know if she quite understands it, but it makes me sad to hear her ask a question like that. And we will go outside for walks. Right. We always wear our masks. And when we get ready to put our masks on, I just see her face right. go from like happy to just like, uh, I'd much rather stay inside and wear this mask. One of the ways that um, I learned about coping recently from a lecture we got through work was that try to, instead of focusing on what they lost, is try to create new sort of memories with them. So, you know, one thing that is kind of a new memory for us is Lila loves to go to the park and play baseball. Like we've never played baseball with her. We happen to have like a dollar store baseball and a bat and she like loves it. So this is like our new thing for her to go to the park and play baseball. So nice. all the old stuff won't may not come back anytime soon, but there are new things that we could like, you know, sort of encourage our kids toward. If you get COVID-19, do you form an antibody once you recover? You know, I think there there is evidence now and, you know, there are tests that show that if you were to test blood to see if there are antibodies against COVID-19, there actually are antibodies that's formed. Um, and the hope is that when you form antibodies, that you would at least be protected from the current form of a, of a virus. Um, so that can happen, you know, if you were to get any kind of virus associated illness, like the flu, if you get the flu for that year, that type of flu would not affect you again for that particular year because you formed antibodies against it and your body remembers it. What about testing for antibodies? Would widespread testing be useful? That's something that I think our workplaces are really starting to, to explore healthcare places in general. So I know that there are nursing homes who are testing and not only testing for the virus, but also testing for antibodies, as well as what I've heard from friends in other areas. Um, Whole clinics have gotten tested. There are actually some clinics locally who are also testing um, staff for antibodies. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to get an idea of where our workforce is in terms of what we've all been exposed to. So in terms of widespread testing, I have not encountered that. And I think we're a long ways away from everyone being able to be tested. And the truth is, there's so much about this virus, like you said, that we just don't know. We don't know how long even natural immunity will last. So the thought is, right now, it's it's looking at the antibodies to kind of try to see who, how many people have actually had the virus. At this point, it's more about trying to figure out how many people have either test positive or have antibodies, which indicates that they at some point were exposed to the virus. It's more of just trying to see really the prevalence of it in the community. What exactly are the tests that are performed to detect COVID-19? It's really important to distinguish between the two types of tests that are out there. So there's a test that attempts to see if you actively have the virus, meaning you are infective to others. And then there's the antibody testing. So the test that that tries to see if you actively have the virus, that's the nasal swab that you're getting when you get COVID testing. Um, That's actually looking for, you know, viral DNA or RNA 
Mm-hmm. So it's actually telling you if it's if it's there and it's actively replicating within your system versus the antibody test. It can tell you a little bit of whether there's active, you know, if it's actively present or not. But oftentimes it will be most useful to tell you whether or not you've been exposed. Um, it'll let you know if you've come into contact with this virus. How does your faith affect how you handle the COVID-19 crisis as doctors? I found this kind of interesting because... I'm a researcher. I believe in data. The CDC says that something is amiss. I believe it. They tell us to stay in the house in order to protect ourselves. I look at the numbers. I say, yes, I agree. The numbers are high. There are a lot of deaths. You know, this is a serious disease where even the asymptomatic person can spread it. I agree with that. Absolutely. I, I also feel like I can be in agreement and accepting of the numbers to a certain extent and protect myself as recommended by the by those who are in the power to give us these numbers. But also I can be hopeful. We're asking for a miraculous recovery from this. We yes. listen to science. And I think this mm-hmm. is sometimes where people have a hard time balancing is feeling like you have to be either or when in reality right. you don't. So we, we hear the science, we follow the recommendations, we wear our masks, we socially distance ourselves. But on the other side, we are also actively praying that Lord, you take this away and that you, you know, that the numbers that they predict, that those are not the actual numbers, that we see something better than that. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I agree with that. That's my hope. I, I personally do not want to see this thing where it's, okay, you got to get your flu vaccine and your coronavirus vaccine. I've, me neither. I don't want that. But guess what? If it came to it, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, right here, we're pediatricians. We are pediatricians. Um, prevention is, you know, that's our bread and butter, not in terms of money, but that's just what we do. That's the core of pediatrics yeah. is health. It's prevention. It's anticipatory guidance. Like we're trying to prevent things. We're trying to anticipate and we're trying to give the best um, care possible to prevent the bad things from happening in the future. But the faith part of me right now is just not ready to say this is what it's going to be like forever. Um, my own personal, you know, this is faith family medicine. I will have to say I, I do. I pray over everything, really, when it comes to my kids. Whatever medication, even antibiotics, there are antibiotics that people take like water that can have very serious side effects. So, you know, every form of of medicine, everything we do in life, there's risk and benefit. And, you know, we want to lessen the risk as much as possible and maximize the benefits. And when I say that vaccines are beneficial, they are absolutely beneficial and absolutely uh, necessary. But, you know, the faith part of me right now, I just believe that this is a reset in so many different ways that we have an opportunity to reset. And I hope we all make the most of it. You know, I'm trying every day, (laughs) not always succeeding. Yeah, I think that's good because sometimes, you know, there's kind of, people kind of feel a force. Like you got to be scientific or you have to have faith. And in the reality, it's like, it's no, it's like the middle. Like, you know, I'm doing things according to the book when I take care of my patients based on science, but I'm also praying for my patients. Yeah. Praying, you know, that the things that I do, you know, are, you know, 
are always the right things, are always in their their best interests. I'm going by the book, but I'm also hoping that there is, you know, something greater taking over to ensure that the outcomes are good. So we don't have to be so separate. And I think that's the key to this podcast is that exactly. you know, our faith is the lens through which we see everything, including our, our work as doctors. Who should wear a mask? Really, everyone should wear a mask. If you're going out, if you're going to a grocery store, or if you're going to be in a situation where you're going to be in contact with other people, you absolutely should wear a mask. There are some exceptions, like on for LA City, I guess, when you're walking around. I mean, I personally think that people should wear a mask when they're out walking, when they're out jogging, because there is some evidence now for um, droplets in aerosol. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think that everyone should wear a mask when you're out. Mm-hmm. And then there are times you should wear a mask if you do have COVID-19, if you're positive or you have symptoms and you're what we call a PUI person under investigation, uh, you should wear a mask as well when you're at home. Mm-hmm. So if you can't hundred percent isolate yourself from others in your household, if you have symptoms, if you have tested positive or you have a test pending, if you cannot completely isolate yourself, you should wear a mask at home and also do the social distancing, the six feet apart. If you have a cough, a fever, shortness of breath, you are presumed that you have it. You should act as if you have it. Yeah, I definitely do wear a mask at all times. So even, you know, at the park, we go to the park, we wear our masks because, you know, in LA and probably other very busy cities out there, it's just hard to really know that no one's going to walk past you. The sidewalks are small. Uh, You you just never really know who's going to come up on you. So we always want to just be prepared because all you need is that, you know, someone to come by and cough and the potential for exposure is there. So we just kind of universally mask it wherever we go. The other part of that is whether or not babies should wear masks. And I think in general, you know, the, they, they're recommending, yes, the age of two, they're recommending the age of two is the cutoff and that person should be able to remove their mask. Um, mm-hmm. That's kind of a good gauge of whether or not they should have on a mask. So, you know, someone less than two would may not have the dexterity to be able to remove that if they're having trouble breathing. Um, babies will be at risk for having trouble breathing, having their face covered. So mm-hmm. ages two and up, everyone should universally have on a mask. Remember when we were little in in Chicago or when we were in Chicago and you had relatives, neither one of us had kids in Chicago. So we we haven't had that experience, but I remember we didn't want to have kids in Chicago. It's too cold. Hallelujah. (laughs) But I remember people bringing their kids to clinic, you know, in their car seat, but their car seat was like covered with um, a blanket. Now, of course you have to be careful with the blankets as well. Mm-hmm. Um, especially at home, but it's fine if you are outside and this will lead into something else. If you're taking your baby, your two month old or your four, six, 12, 18 month old in for their vaccines, yeah. um, you should just cover their car seat with, um, with a blanket that's breathable. Make sure obviously it's not covering their face and that, um, that works as well. Yeah, and I will. I do want to reiterate that we do still want you to bring your children in for their vaccines, for especially their two, four, six month, twelve month, eighteen month vaccines. 
um, because we don't want to start something else. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want to have out more outbreaks of pertussis and measles and all of these other things because people aren't coming in and people are not coming in right now for their vaccines. So we just want to strongly encourage you if you have young children, they need to come in for their vaccines. And yeah. You know, just talk to your doctor's office about what they're doing to minimize risk. I know that pediatric offices across the country are doing everything possible to keep your children safe while you bring them for those primary vaccines. Is it safe to seek care for other medical issues during this time? In the era of coronavirus, and I will have to admit, even as a healthcare provider, we're just thinking you know, every person who comes in, do they have Corona? Do they have Corona? But there are other things that are still going on, people. So if you have a concerning symptom, please call your doctor. Yes. If your doctor and do the telephone visit, do the telehealth visit. If you have a concern about something, don't, don't let it go. Call your doctor. Talk to them. Um, we're still here for you because we want to take care of the other things that are going on in in your life. So, you know, if you have a problem, if you're having a symptom, if your child is having a symptom, don't ignore it. Don't be afraid. And if you have to take them in, don't be afraid. Do the necessary precautions and, um, you know, work with your doctor, work with your provider about the best way, the safest way to be seen. Yeah. And your doctor is trying to balance this. They're trying to balance the illness that you may be coming in with versus risk of exposure to COVID. I do this pretty much all week to figure out whether or not our patients should be seen in the ER, if we can do outpatient testing to evaluate them. So your doctor is weighing those risks. um, But like she said, don't be afraid to call. The first step is just to get on the phone and say, hey, this is how I'm feeling. Right. We don't want you to, you know, sit out there with something serious and fear of COVID, something serious that could be life-threatening. The hospitals are equipped to protect you and keep you safe. We want to keep you out of those ERs as much as we can. But hey, sometimes other emergencies happen. Yes. Sometimes you got to go. (laughs) Sometimes you got to go. Yeah. Sometimes you got to go. Um, And it's important to remember that. Yes. My friend just had a new baby. Is it safe to visit? No, sorry. Um, I mean, there are some rare... Okay, you can't visit them in the hospital, number one. Most hospitals have policies regarding either the partner only. Um, In New York, I think some women have been given birth by themselves. It's, you know, it's a hard, hard situation, but definitely um, visitation is very limited in hospitals right now, really for anybody. And um, even in homes, you know, I've had to counsel patients, you know, I know you just had your baby, but you really have to think about now, if you're sheltering in place with grandma and all these, you know, different people, you know, my mother-in-law's here, you know, we're shel- we're all sheltering in place together. Um, that's one thing. But if it's somebody that you're not living with, who is, especially if they're actively um, out and about, 
I would strongly caution against having them come visit. Yeah. So the the really hard part about this yeah. coronavirus that's going around is that the asymptomatic people can be carriers of the virus and they can bring that to people who are at high risk. Right. You know, we hear that kids do better, but newborns, we just always just assume that they're right. at higher risk for anything. Exactly. And there have actually been kids who've done not so great with the coronavirus. So you, I don't want you to think because you're asymptomatic, oh, I can go over there or kids are, you know, they're, they're okay. No, no, no. We still want to protect them because bad outcomes can happen, especially in newborn babies. So it really is your responsibility to just kind of take a step back and say, right now, it's not the time. And it's hard. It's hard to miss these, these things. The baby will only be born once, but you know, there are other things you can consider doing, making mementos or FaceTiming or things like that so that we can eventually have this all go away and we can get back to whatever is our new normal in the future. Exactly. And there are policies too. There even, there have been moms who are COVID positive. So the AAP and the CDC have set out recommendations for that as well. Um, Right now, what they're saying is that they want the babies, if a mom is COVID positive and she delivers a baby, they actually want the baby to be in a separate room. But if that's not possible, because you know we're not gonna put that baby in like a NICU or a, in a place where there are other babies, um, they have to do the distancing within that mom's room. And in terms of breastfeeding, to me, this is the hardest part that if a mom is COVID positive, they don't necessarily want the baby latching on right now. And it's so important those first few days, but you know, this is, this is where we are. Why has the coronavirus had such a disparate impact on the African-American community? A lot of us, some of us, I mean, not just African-Americans, but for people who have like grocery store jobs or they have other jobs in the healthcare system. Um, they have those essential jobs and they have to go to work, number one. And then number two, um, health disparities are already there. And like Dr. Fossey said, at some point, coronavirus really is shining a light, an even closer light on the health disparities that already exist. Yeah. So from people not being paid attention to, their symptoms not being paid attention to, I think that's a big one that still happens to this day. It's happened to me. It's happened before. Mm-hmm. And I had to, you know, go all mama bear on the doctor. I try not to do that when I'm going in as a parent. But I had to be like, uh, yeah, no, there are certain things that you're supposed to do for this one. My son has a chronic health condition that when he has certain symptoms, you know, it's like two plus two equals four. If he has this, you're supposed to do that period. Like it's not even a question and, um, they didn't want to do it. And I was just like, uh, no, <laughs> you have to, cause this is just what it is. Um, so we all experience bias. There is racial bias in medicine. It just is. And unfortunately, African-American women, we're just, we're the ones who aren't listened to the most. Yeah. Sadly. 
Sadly, sadly, I was reading, I've read all these stories I've read about people in Detroit and this teacher in Brooklyn. You know, these are people who had clear symptoms of COVID-19 and were turned adults and, you know, later on passed away. And so some of them did have underlying health conditions, which made it worse because when you have an underlying health condition, you should be paid even more attention to um, when you have asthma, diabetes, those kinds of things. Um, you know, you deserve further care um, more rapidly, but we have higher rates of those things anyway in our communities. So, so yeah, that that's partially why just the, the bias in the healthcare system and then the actual fact that we have so many we have a higher prevalence of um, comorbidities or these other health conditions that make um, make you more susceptible to coronavirus. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I first heard the the disparities, I mean, yeah. surprising. I I wouldn't. Yeah. I know that the disparities in other diseases exist, but yeah. coronavirus just unroofed that. And yeah. That the outcomes are terrible. You know, seven percent of deaths being made up of a minority population to me is, is it's unacceptable, but it's beyond that. It's, it's almost incomprehensible, but we have to, like, you have to believe the data. Um, Mm -hmm. Some people try to use the data and say, well, you know, maybe they're not taking care of themselves or maybe they're not social distancing, you know, as much, but no, Mm -hmm. that's not how you use this data. You look back and see what, what created this environment where certain people have more comorbidities? What was the underlying social system where there was lack of access to medical care or even mistrust within medical care that prevented them from going to get the health care that they needed? Yeah. It bothers me when I see this data, when people attempt to use this data to kind of, you know, poke blame and say, oh, well, that's because you don't take care of yourself. When it's so much more deeper than that, it's, I mean, it's so much more deeper. And, you know, it's, it's even hard to explain in a single sitting yeah. how to come to a place where this virus could just ravage a whole community, yeah. you know, in such a way. But yeah. this has been years and centuries of doing. How do you think bias within medical care plays into these disparities? We all have biases that we have to sometimes work through. And that's why with as I've matured, even as a doctor, you know, I have to try to step back and try to think about, okay, what is the, what is the patient really saying? Like, I always want to try to get to the heart of their concern or, or complaint. I want to know, like, you know, what's really going on. And when it comes to cold and flu season, sometimes, especially when it starts to get in that really, really busy part, sometimes you can, you know, you can even say, oh, you know, another cough and cold. But, you know, our job as doctors is to try to pick out what's just a cough and cold versus what could be something else. Um, more dangerous or life-threatening. My favorite one is abdominal pain. Like, oh, but there are some things that I always want to know. You know, I want to make sure that this child does not have appendicitis. I want to make sure that there are other things as well. But 
I always, no matter how fatigued I get with things, I have to take a step back and say, okay, look for those things that I might, that you could easily miss. I think it is important that you have to like remind yourself to not make assumptions, take a step back, listen to the patient and, you know, make sure that you're addressing all of what they're telling you and to not make an assumption without truly hearing them. And it could be, you know, difficult sometimes because time is pressing, but I think you have to be intentional about that because, you know, these are implicit biases. We don't always know that we hold them. So you have to have kind of a framework to say, well, this is how I'm going to make sure, or at least with my best effort to make sure that I'm hearing my patient and addressing my patient. Knowing that race is a risk factor for bad outcomes, how do we protect ourselves and our families during this time? For the purposes of this show, if you are a parent, if you are um, a caregiver and you have, or even for yourself, you have to remember to advocate for yourself and for your family. That's one thing I can say just for people of color. You have to advocate for your health. Yeah. You know, because sometimes your provider just won't always as much as you need them to. So you have to advocate for yourself and for your, your children, your family. Yeah. One of the ways I can think about potentially doing that is, you know, hearing the stories of the women who were sent home from the ER. Um, you know, I have to encourage you that, you know, if you are sent home from the ER, but things change at home, you know, you feel worse, call or seek help again. And the other thing you can ask your doctor about is what should I be looking out for at home? You know, what would be a reason to come back to the emergency room? Knowing that, you know, what you may, what you have maybe on that list, but anything new or different that's concerning to you should warrant either a call to your doctor or return to the emergency room to be evaluated further. So even if you're sent home, it doesn't mean you have to stay out of that ER. You have the right to go back until you are, you know, if you're having trouble breathing, you should be able to go back and get help with your trouble breathing. One more thing I want to say to that point for our community, especially is, Um, In these types of situations, you don't want to underestimate the power of a relationship with a primary care doctor. This is when you need to have a primary care doctor that who knows you, because that's the person who can also advocate for you Mm -hmm. as much as we can. And so I don't know how African-American, like what the percentage is of Americans in general who have a, a good primary care doctor. Um, but I would say that's one thing that maybe if patients had had their primary care doctor, even had a telephone point, appointment with them, and then had their doctor order the test, like sent them to the ER with instructions to have this test done. So I want to encourage you, all all of you, to get a good primary care doctor (laughs) because we can also be your advocate Mm -hmm. because going to two or three different emergency rooms may or may not help you because you have two or three different doctors who are seeing you at one moment in time and they don't know you, they don't know your history. So, you know, I emphasize that enough that you should have a primary care doctor. Because if you have a chronic condition, so all the things that affect our communities more, if you have asthma, if you have diabetes, if you have high blood pressure, you should be seeing your primary care doctor. And so that's how you develop those relationships 
with your with your primary. So you go to your primary doctor even when you feel good. Like they're the doctors that you see once a year, yeah. more often if you have diseases. But you see them even though yeah. you feel okay. That's why they're called the primary care physicians. They see you when you're sick, but they also see you when you feel yeah. relatively okay in order to pick up on those things that could be life-threatening for you in the future. So if you haven't established it, this is the perfect reason to go ahead and do that and to keep it going. Do you think healthcare workers should receive a separate stimulus for the risk of exposure? Or is this an assumed risk that comes with the job? I like this question. I think it makes it makes you think. I like that question too. I like it. <laughs> it does make you think. I, I think that, I mean, hey, we could use a little extra. <laughs> We can always use a little extra. Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I think some healthcare workers should, for sure. Yeah. And when I say some, I, I mean like the people who work in the cafeteria and um, the cleaning crew and, you know, the security guard who has to stand out front. And, you know, literally come in contact with every single person who walks in the door. I think those people should definitely get extra. I think they should get access to reduced childcare and enhanced childcare, right? Because there, there can be fewer kids at each one of these health, health or daycare centers. So they need more access to, to good quality care for their kids if they don't have anyone to leave them with. But I think that there should be a, a separate fund for healthcare workers who have to take off time because of the virus, like if they got sick mm-hmm. um, and then other resources because I, I am kind of mentally exhausted. Me and a girlfriend of mine, she's a pediatrician too. I was on my way home. We were talking because that's when I have to talk to my friends in Chicago like when I'm on my way home from work or at odd times because of the time difference. It's so weird. But anyway, we were talking about, she was like, man, yesterday I was so tired. I just didn't feel like doing my whole thing. You know, the whole thing where you come home and you're like, okay, I got to strip off everything. He's spraying Lysol. I got to pray over my lungs for real because of all the Lysol spray and stuff I've (laughs) inhaled over the last seven weeks. Um, you know, clean the shoes, taking off the clothes, running upstairs to take a shower. Um, and then just that overall feeling of yuckiness after being at work all day. And for me, it's that physical and emotional toll of every, every single moment you're like, does this person have the virus and are they giving it to me or are they exposing it to me? Now that's where my faith have, has to come in. And that's where I have to, to, you know, reset my mind to not focus on that and just pray the prayers that I've been praying about protection. And because honestly, you could go crazy just thinking about that. Um, so I think there should be other resources for, you know, for physicians, for people who see patients, for healthcare workers in general, because I think it's the emotional toll of everything we have to do every single time 
you leave the house and then come back. I don't know if just money, but definitely others that could cost money that that money can be used for because it's exhausting. One of the emotional things I didn't realize was going to be an issue was responsibility for staff. You know, I didn't, I didn't actually realize until recently that my decisions affect whether or not my staff gets exposed. So like if I don't do the right thing, my staff member could have been exposed and that could be, you know, or depending on who it is, it could not be a good thing for them. So I had, you know, just a situation. Thankfully, it turned out everything was negative, but that it weighed on me as I waited to to know, like, did I do the right thing? You know, is my staff affected? Mm-hmm. But that responsibility of keeping those around you safe, whether it be your family or the people in your clinic, it's a heavy mm-hmm. responsibility and burden. And I did just have to pray through it and just ask for peace until we knew further information, but it, it takes a toll on you. Well, that concludes another episode of Faith Family Medicine. If you could take only one thing away from this episode, be sure to establish care with the primary doctor. It is not too late. Check with your insurance company for an assigned doctor, or if you are uninsured, use a search engine like Google to search for free or income-based clinics. It may require multiple telephone calls, but be persistent, and let's go into our new normal with established primary care doctors. The views and opinions expressed by Dr. Laster and Dr. Watkins are their own and are not representative of their respective employers. (laughs) 